Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guests today are Andrea Dominicini and John Waterloo. Dre and John are founders of Voices in the Dark, a podcast that explores the human experience and is currently breaking down Robert Greene's seminal book, The 48 Laws of Power. Gents, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. You're absolutely welcome. Great. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, I've we'll listened to bits and pieces of your work and I'm really, really enjoying it. Oh, good. Thank you. That's yeah. good to hear. Yeah. How, 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 which episodes have you been listening to? Uh, the most recent one that you, you did, I think it's episode number 30. Okay. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Very interesting. And we'll, I think we'll, we'll look to explore some of the, the themes that have been coming out of your, your work. Um, a bit later, but for now it would be great um, to find out, I suppose, a bit more about each of you and your backstories. So, yeah, who are you guys? Oh no, the most distressing question <laughs> of all <laughs> to begin. You know, that's actually a really deep Zen meditation, like a koan that people struggle with their whole lives. They sit and meditate, who am I? Who am I? <laughs> Pulsing away. <laughs> Well, we did the Peter Sage exercise where we shouted it out really loud, so you should have a pretty good... Yeah, I find that that's the, the, the Peter Sage, we, you went to one of his events, maybe you did the same thing, you have this yeah. I am statement. First of all, yes. you have to be, become calm with just saying I am, and that's enough. <laughs> I found that really helpful actually, because, so when I'm asked this sort of question, there's the confusion that arises, right, where you think, what I'm meant to tell you is what job I do or what education I've got mm -hmm. or all these things that are really th things that you, you do or have done. Whereas when you, you're phrasing it still as something as though it's your essence. You know, <laughs> when someone goes, I am an accountant, I'm like, I think you're so much more. <laughs> you know, I hope you are. I hope you are so much more. Um, so what sort of information do you want to know? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I suppose, um, yeah, maybe the sort of the types of, of work that you've both done, done and the way in which the work that you've done has influenced the way that you are. Um, you know, listening to your work, you're both clearly very intellectual. Um, we, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do believe that. Um, and, I, I, you know, you're, you're absolutely right to most people when they're asked um, a question. It's, it's a very open question, but to many people, it's just quite an innocuous question. And yeah. they will just simply answer it, you know, this, yeah, is, this, is what, this is my job, this is who I, you know. Most people don't have an existential crisis well, when someone asks <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. Right. It, it, well, okay. Have you, have, do you believe that you've had... Uh, some sort of existential crisis? Yes. More I mean, than often, one? Maybe daily. Um, I think, so I, I think that when people ask that question to me, instead of just feeling as though I can just say, oh yeah, this, this, and this, and not be sort of emotionally engaged in it, uh -huh. I, it hits me like, ugh, I don't know. I don't know who I am or how to say it. So I'm trying to become more recently through like lots of meditation, reflection, I've been changing a bunch of things in my life, moving away from an academic sort of trajectory, career trajectory, which is where I was heading, that I'm trying to be more comfortable with the uncertainty and just the I am statement. I do things that I find interesting. I like, um, I, you know, I love making our podcast. I like 
asking questions, learning about things, sharing that with other people, have interesting conversations, be entertaining, provocative, get shake up established ways of thinking both for myself and for other people. Mm -hmm. Basically sharing ideas, discussing ideas, digging into those are the things that I like to do. Um, and I suppose the things that I like to do are kind of therefore who I am. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I am someone who, when you ask the question, I go, I don't know. It's not just sitting there. And, it's <laughs> not so sitting there answering, answering me. Dre, uh, what's your take on it? Well, and, and as far as that is concerned, I think it's because you're kind of still trying to figure it out. Yeah. And it worries you. gives it you anxiety figuring it out. And so when someone else puts you on the spot, it just triggers that cascade yeah, I'm of triggered. Like, you I triggered don't know me. who I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've had to do this quite a lot and I've just come up with a bit of a formula of explaining who I am because I, I kind of see it more of a, okay, this person is trying to find out what kind of person I am so they can tick certain boxes and you know, yeah. know how to talk to me or what they can talk to me about. So I was, I'm Italian. I was born in Italy. Um, I, was, I was an autistic child. Uh, very distracted, in the clouds kind of thing, always reprimanded for, you know, sort of doing this <laughs> instead of listening to the teacher. Mm -hmm. um, quite a happy kid, but a um, bit weird. My family moved to New Zealand when I was 12 because my dad was sick okay. of sort of Italian life, uh, bureaucracy, difficulties, and all sorts of corruption and things like that. So we moved to the opposite side of the world, opposite lifestyle, you know, out in the open, friendly kind of thing, but a little bit backwards. I grew up there, um, and so I was a child of two worlds in a way. Which it's just like a recurring theme for me as well, because my parents are completely opposites as well. So I'm a child of two worlds in many, many different ways. Yeah. In New Zealand, I grew up sort of um, in the open spaces, sort of um, spending a lot of time outdoors, and I went into science because uh, that was kind of my passion as a kid. Science and history were my two things that I really cared about, and I wanted to become the Bill Gates of biotechnology, that's what I said at the time, because I wanted to have a Microsoft-sized company. This was before Microsoft started shrinking. <laughs> wow. um, and um, primarily the things I wanted to do was defeat cellular aging, wow. um, uh, regrow organs, that kind of thing, and enhance humans cognitively and physically. That's what, that was what I wanted to do. But after a degree and a postgraduate degree and a master's, I figured out that you couldn't really do that as a scientist. It's not meritocratic, like software engineering. <laughs> it's not like you have a cool idea, let's test it out. Also because it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. Whereas computers prices have come down to the point, you know, where Steve Jobs and Wozniak could build relatively cheaply something in the garage. You can't do genetics in your garage easily. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'll need to rethink this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a little bit sick of New Zealand. It's too small for me. It feels too provincial. I want to go live in Europe. I don't want to do science right away. I want to learn business because I think I need to be a businessman. So when I came here, I, I came here because I wanted to come to Europe. Um, I would have liked to go to America, but I couldn't because you know it's difficult, green cards, and it was post-September 11th as well, so mm -hmm. very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, but I could come to here because I had a European passport. And my options were really countries that I spoke a language of, so Italy, Ireland, and uh, the UK. Um, and I didn't want to go back home, so that ruled that out. And I didn't want to live in a small town, because that's kind of what I did in New Zealand. New Zealand's small town everywhere. Yeah. And I wanted, so that, that left London, really. And so I came here, and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and then things started just happening, and 
one thing after another. So I, I started, I joined a startup, which was called the Geek Squad. It was a computer startup. And I thought, okay, a startup will be cool because I'll learn business skills. I'll learn how a business grows from nothing. And I started it, I got involved in it, became a spokesperson, did a few things and for that. But then I fell into the trap of, okay, well, maybe this is a thing that I can pursue a career in. And I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and there was for various reasons, or at least it, it also moved a lot slower than I expect things to, to move. In what I think, respect? Like, I don't want to do the same job for more than two years. Oh, like, yeah. that, that, that drives me insane. Like, I get yeah. bored really easily. Like, I, I'll learn something really, really quickly. I'll become really, really good at it. I'm like, okay, next. <laughs> like, no, no, no. <laughs> you, can't, you can't go to the next thing. There's also this kind of weird thing where people expect you to go through a certain hierarchy to get to something. Yeah. And I'm like, but I'm good at that thing that you want me to do another 10 jobs before that I don't know how to do. I could do that. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. why do I have to prove myself at sh stuff that I'm shit at first? That doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a certain expectation of, you know, growth and slow progression. Yes. Um, so I got tired of the Geek Squad, left that, and I tried to find another job, and I wanted to learn how to do things properly. Well, well done, because they did a lot of mistakes, because they let the car from Warehouse, which was the UK partner for Best Buy Electronics, who started the Geek, well, not started the Geek Squad, but runs the Geek Squad in the US. So they started it together in the UK as a joint thing because they wanted to try and suss each other out as business partners, which fell apart really badly. <laughs> but so the car from warehouse tried to do their style of thing, which was super cheap stuff, mass produce, yeah. bosh it out, and <laughs> everything, everything will be fine. That's their business model. Whereas the Geek Squad, itself was meant to be a high quality brand and then so I, I, I that's what I expected from them so I tried to go to a proper high quality brand which was Apple to learn their branding and systems and things like that yeah. I wanted to know how to do things the way that they did it because I found the way that they did things inspiring mm -hmm. did that for a while and I just keep repeating that pattern <laughs> I, I, I forget the reason why I joined in the first place and kind of think oh I could make a career out of this and then I hit walls mostly made out of middle management that prevented me from going to places. Interesting. And leaving Apple, that was kind of, um, I, I had a few other jobs after that, but it just it was just a spiral of shorter and shorter jobs where I just, the last one, I only lasted one month. Okay. <laughs> um, because I want to, I have ideas, I want to do things and I'm always prevented. Um, and I just kind of realized that that's kind of my problem. That's me, that's the way I am. Why can't I convince other people to give me the opportunities that I want? And so from that point, it's been self-development. And through that, I came to London Rio. I started helping Brian Rose out uh, four years ago, roughly, a little bit longer than that. And I saw it as an opportunity to test what I thought I was. So like, I think I'm an amazing entrepreneur that can do sorts of all crazy, really high quality things without having to learn how to do this first or prove myself that way and that <laughs> way. The, you know, the, the classical millennial problem, the entitlement problem. Um, and I thought I could. I said, well, now I can because if someone has built something already, I don't have to worry about building that. I can prove myself on that, test my ideas out, help mm -hmm. it grow, and earn my keep, basically. And so I worked to help Brian grow London Real to where it is. Uh, four years ago, they only had about 4,000 YouTube subscribers. That's 200,000. They used to do split three cameras. 
That was one of the first things I told them we needed to change. It took a while to convince them. Really? <laughs> but yeah, we just kind of worked on improving a little bit every month, a little bit every week, which was hard because it was essentially me and him. Uh, Nick left shortly after his co-host. Uh, I joined. And we had some bunch of interns, but they never did, really did their work. Whereas I kind of give 100%. Mm-hmm. And for two and a half years, almost three years, it was just me and him, really. Oh. And that's kind of, that, that is my take on that whole, who are you? Yeah, <laughs> who are you? Yeah, yeah. In that particular sense, because that answers your question of where you've come from and what have you done. Mm-hmm. But if you ask me in a more existential sort of way, I would answer differently. I need to take notes on how to answer the question. I was going to say, no. you need to get yourself <laughs> one was, of those. It was a little... Yeah. I, I had a, an interesting conversation with some, some people at the... the uh, monastery that I spent the, the last month in, um, they pointed out that that question can often be, it's more for the person asking, you need to take care of their needs in the way you said at the beginning, which is what is it that they want to know? They, need to, they want to know how to relate to you and they want to like, lose that sense of who is this person, the possible danger, you know, how, how can I interact in a, in a positive way or do I want to? So it's not really about me and my crisis, <laughs> which is <I laughs> actually about, well, what do they want to know? So it's something I need to try and bear in mind. Yeah, yeah. That's really, it's, it, I find this actually really fascinating. I find it fascinating because nobody to date has had quite, I suppose, the reaction that you had to the question. <laughs> Although some people have kind of gone down a bit of a rabbit hole and thought, yeah, who, who, who am I? They're sitting there oh, trying, yeah. to, trying to process, like, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, so that is really interesting. And how do you spin it too? Because I could tell you I'm from Edinburgh and then people go, yeah, where's your accent? I like, hmm, got lost in the post. <laughs> like, as my family moved around a bunch, but Edinburgh's my home and I grew up here. Um, but when you have, in, this, in the UK, the accent is really important. So there's this kind of sort of suspicion that plays into it, like, are you sure you're from here? <laughs> <laughs> once again, that's more about them because they think you're playing a trick on them. Yeah, I suppose they do. To what end, I don't know. Huh. Wow. Okay. The, something that I, I find... Um, it's something that I've been thinking about and it's um, obviously... You're, you're on the like artistic spectrum, is probably how you would say it. And John, I know that you've um, battled with depression um, at, at some level, certainly. Sure. Um, I don't. I don't know the probably the full extent of it. Um, but what what really interests me is like how is your experience of like life different to say my own, and how do I gain a better understanding of what yeah you're experiencing, and that's something that I really I think it's something that I've probably not been um, especially conscious of for a long time, but it's something that I've started to more and more think about like what is this person actually you mm. know when i ask for example who are you your reaction to that would be different to other people's reactions i guess to find out about us you subscribe to our podcast <laughs> <laughs> in a way the way we answered is quite telling his was like yeah. stop hurting me <laughs> <laughs> and mine was like here's my list <laughs> i'm going to tell, tell you exactly who i am very specifically the itinerary so that's, it is quite a reflection of our sort of particular outlook. I think the yeah. thing to remember, it's a trite thing that turns up, uh, that people put up on, on Facebook, that everybody is fighting a battle that you don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And that is worth remembering, that maybe it's not always this battle of life and death, 
but you don't know how they're experiencing their reality that day. Maybe the person who you think is being a total shit because they just shoved someone out the way in a queue or you know, they didn't give up their seat to an elderly person. Well, especially with that, maybe they've got an injury you can't see, but also maybe someone close to them died that day and they're in a totally different world yeah. and you don't know. Or maybe they're a dick. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah. worth, it's worth remembering that one too. Even simpler than that, I had a conversation very recently with someone who, who was dating this particular girl and uh, at one point she called him or sent him a message saying, you're lying, you're a liar, over uh, basically he'd said that he did something or had was something, it's important, it's irrelevant, but two years ago. And she'd found out that it was 18 months ago and he'd lied. Oh. Whereas he'd just kind of forgotten. Yeah. 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 But to her, because she's very, very analytical and she wouldn't forget that detail and she'd mm. be very specific. Omitting that must have been intentional, right? So she couldn't even think that to him it, it could, could be, be something that you forget. Yeah. So it's a simple, it's not even a battle, it's just a people have different frameworks. And if you expect people to think the way that you do, you're gonna think that they're liars or, you know, trying to get you in some way. Or I mean, we have an interesting um, uh, dynamic at times where, so I will like finish a piece of writing, which for me is really a, kind of often a difficult process. It's something I love to do and I kind of, I stress over it and then I create my, my beautiful piece and I'm like, yes, 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 there we go. Dre, look at this. And he'll look at it and go, mm-hmm. And assume that I know that he thinks it's good because, so for me, I, I overly feel the need for the sort of the reassurance, the validation, yeah. you know, which is something I'm, I'm really trying to work on because it's, as, as was uh, someone pointed out to me, Praise doesn't make you better. Praise doesn't improve the quality of the work. It doesn't improve your quality of life, really. It doesn't improve your ability to create what you create and know whether it's good or not, mm -hmm. the praise stuff. And Dre assumes that, of course, I should know that he thinks it's good or you know that I've done a good job or that he's supportive of me and so on. And that's kind of the, so I can explain my side of it. And how do you experience that side? Yeah, I. I, that's not something I particularly require myself, so I forget that other people require it. Yeah. Well, you know, like I have to get into a habit and I have to learn who requires it because also I don't assume, I tend not to assume that people are the same. Um, so I, and I don't know, for, for example, whether someone's going to expect me to hug them. Like right, like and the, the, it used to it used to be something that would make me really nervous to understand. Like, is this going to be a handshake sort of guy? Is this mm. a hug sort of guy? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how how you want me to do this because if it was up to me, I would do neither. <laughs> <laughs> I am okay with. What, what would be your but, preference? Just but, standing it from afar and just. Well, hug. it's not that I don't want to do it, but it's that if no, if it wasn't a social convention, it wouldn't even occur to me, and that's just the way my mind works. But I've come to know that if I don't do it then people think something is wrong because mm -hmm. they expect it and they think it's normal. So then, I'm, then, then I start worrying about, okay, so is this going to be a handshake? Is, you know, what's going on? And then maybe they'll just grab me and give me a hug. And I'm like, okay, he's a hugger. So next time I'll hug him. And Categorize, yeah. clear. <laughs> <laughs> because to me, it's, I mean, it's not a big deal. Um, and it's more about communicating on your level. Yeah. And once I know what the level is, I'm like, cool. But, but, I mean, is it unorthodox that you would have any level of anxiety with respect to whether someone's going to hug or handshake you? Mm. 
uh, I guess it's well, I don't know if it's orthodox, but it's it's physical contact is just a thing that people on the autistic spectrum tend to find a bit. It, okay. We feel it's way more intimate. Okay. Yeah. So, someone that I don't think is a friend is just to me is just an acquaintance. Giving me a hug is no different than if they came up and give me a kiss. You know, it's it's that same kind of this this is happening to me and I don't really want it to. Like it just feels very intimate, and I don't find you that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So it's it's that kind of so if you wanted to kind of relate to that feeling, it's the same as an unwanted advances. Hmm. Even though it, to most people it's such a low level uh, physical contact that it's not sexual or any way yeah. intimate. To me, it feels that way. So having to yeah. negotiate yeah. and figure out whether I'm expected to reciprocate, you know, is it used to be stressful. My my, my personal development journey has been trying to overcome and step outside of this kind of box because it's limiting and it prevented me from finding, you know, from, from advancing in various things, personal relationships, business, uh, career-wise, all sorts of things. Yeah. So I didn't want to be constricted by that framework. I think in terms of your, your question about how to better appreciate where other people are coming from, sometimes I think the important thing is to appreciate that you, you cannot understand where they're coming from. And though you might, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't interact with them in a productive and sensitive way. But when it comes to something like someone who's experiencing deep depression, one of the worst things to say is, I understand how it feels. Or, I, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just like, no, no, you fucking don't. <laughs> I mean, it, it's that it's, people will say it because they go, yeah, you know, we all get down sometimes. And I want to punch you in the face. Like, it's different that you felt sad one day to the fact that suddenly you can fall down the abyss into the, the pit where you're lying on the ground, hiding under a blanket, unable to move, and just wishing that you were dead. Mm -hmm. There are differences there. Um, but the problem, you know, both sides need to think about that. So I think it's best not to say, I understand, just go, I, I, I can't possibly understand, but you know, I'm, I'm here. If I can help in any way, know that I'm here. And sometimes just being there is enough. And for me, I find that the stories, the negative thought patterns and stories that I can tell myself tend to go away when I'm around people that I like. It feels a bit like I can't indulge those things because I'm surrounded by a different set of social conventions and expectations, or I know how I should act in these ways. And it's easier because there's people there watching. Whereas on my own, I can trick myself and go, no, I guess there's no point in trying to do the positive thing. Maybe I'll just go down this, this spiral. Mm -hmm. And it wears grooves in your habits. If you have thought processes that just cascade, it's, you know, you put one toe in and suddenly you've slipped and you've gone all the way down instead of just being able to go, I feel a bit bad. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> back to work. Yeah. So, so what are some of the things that you've done in order to try and cope with depression? just killed and killed again. <laughs> so many deaths. <laughs> um, um, I was, I, uh, it took some time before I accepted that there was like anything that I was gonna do about it. And then um, my boyfriend at the time said, no, you really, we need to do something. Like after another like evening, it's often very exacerbated by alcohol and I'd had another kind of 
lurching back and forth evening between, oh, everything's fine, no, I'm inconsolable, tears everywhere, you hate me, everyone hates me, but not as much as I hate me. Mm. And he's like, this has got to stop, you know, this is very difficult for everybody and you're hurting yourself. So I went to the doctor and of course the doctor gave me antidepressants. And I was against that because I thought I don't want to just numb out the, the feelings because I'll still feel them. And it's like putting, I thought it was like putting earplugs in, like the noise is still there. You're just blocking it in some way. Mm. That wasn't how I felt it though. I felt it was um, more like, uh, I heard someone describe this in a, I think the documentary Stephen Fry made, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive that instead of having this full spectrum going up and down in intensity, you could instead do the widescreen envelope effect like they did on videos before we all had 16 to nine TVs, yeah. the black bars, and you can live in the middle. You don't have to be in the extreme up or the extreme down. I never really had extreme ups, but you know, some people, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> um, and that felt kind of comfortable. And then after a few, a few years, that seemed to just screw up and they gave me different ones and then we kept increasing the dosage and um, and that was just life and I thought that's how it's going to be. And then I suppose I got to a kind of phase of, I know I had a really, really difficult breakup which wasn't just an end of a relationship. I'd really done a lot of my key insecurities were deeply, deeply bound up in that relationship. So it ended up that we tr sort of set off each other's insecurities and it, and it just kind of nuclear blast of, I came out of it going, I don't, again, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am anymore. So much of what I thought was important about me and my identity, I had invested in this relationship. like. And, and now I wasn't sure anything. Why, why am I getting up in the morning at all? Um, and that, I think at some level made me realize these pills aren't really enough. Like I can still get into these states. And during, during that relationship at certain like dramatic moments, I tried to kill myself on a couple of occasions. And I only, on one of those occasions, I was only stopped because someone stopped me. The mm -hmm. second occasion, it was like very touch and go. I was standing on a roof and I was like, I don't, it wasn't, I wasn't sure that I would die at the bottom. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to horribly injure myself. Mm -hmm. I just want to end. So kind of, if I'd been in a higher building, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't be here right now. So, well, the pills don't seem to be doing enough of a good job here. Mm -hmm. And then I started hearing about ayahuasca. And the more that I heard, the more I thought, ah, okay, maybe this is something to get into. And I, after the, that breakup, I started seeing a counselor regularly who I still do, like it's been a couple of years, I guess. And that, for the first time, it was someone who, because I tried counseling before, mostly it's, it's a, sorry, counselors of the world, my experience, it's mostly it's an idiot sitting across from you who just echoes, rephrases what you just said back at you. Like, I feel so, so anxious. I'm not really sure what to do with my life. And they go, it sounds like you're a bit anxious and you're a bit, a bit uncertain about where to go. And they're like, I know, fuck face. <laughs> That's what I just told you. Yeah. Um, so the different dude, gradual, gradual levels of, you know, move. It, it's sometimes I think you need someone like a close friend who can tell you you're doing a lot better than you were six months ago, because I find that I at least am so 
in the moment and have such a kind of fuzzy sense of my emotional state from six months ago that I don't know. It's like when you, like, if you don't do a before and after picture, if you go on like a, a diet or some gym thing, you don't really see it so much. You need a visual, visual cue or someone mm -hmm. to tell you. Um, and so as part of going to drink ayahuasca, you can't take um, SSRIs, uh, the most common kind of antidepressant they give out. So I stopped and I was kind of fine. And I felt the volatility was greater, the possibility of entering kind of extreme states. But it was quite a surprise to go, wait, how much were those things doing mm. at all at mm -hmm. that stage? And I mean, I, the ayahuasca is a whole other story. And I've already been, I don't, I, I don't know if I need to go into the whole thing here and just uh, I could talk about it for a long time. But that certainly shook up the snow globe of my head again. Yeah. And, it, and it doesn't magically cure depression. It doesn't magically do, it doesn't really magically do anything but it can help you realize what's not working for you. But then when you realize something like that, I, I wrote an article about this, you, guess what? You then have to change stuff and that's unsettling and disturbing. But most people, in my experience of, of reading or hearing about people's ayahuasca experiences, they say, yeah, and then I totally understood. Like it was all because of this one event in childhood or I finally found out how to love myself and now everything's great. Well, I think they're often spoken to like right afterwards. And then as you go back into your everyday life, it's very hard to keep that clarity and you have to put a lot of effort into actualizing what you saw and felt mm. and making, making that real. Mm. I don't remember what the question was anymore. <laughs> <laughs> How you dealt with depression and stuff. I, I took drugs and then I took different drugs. Yeah. <laughs> That's the key. You've had um, experiences with psychedelics as well. Yes, you? and I feel they were instrumental in, I, I, I always like to say curing my autism, but it's kind of a funny word because people would assume that it disappeared and now I'm different. Whereas when I explain it, uh, I like to say, before I was locked in a room and that was my room. I knew where everything was, but I wasn't really aware of the outside world. I couldn't understand anything outside of this. Several life experiences left me able to kind of peer outside a crack in a door that wasn't there before. And I could look outside and see other people, you know, playing together and enjoying themselves, but I couldn't join them. I didn't know how to get out. Um, various things helped me push that a little bit more open so I could kind of see more of that and, and feel like I could go. That was part of it because I could see better, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until psychedelics an MDMA that I could leave that room. Now I can leave that room, but I can also go back into it, mostly intentionally, but sometimes during times of high stress and anxiety, it's by default that that happens. I just go back in there. So that's kind of my visual representation of what it's like. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. What really stands out for me, just because I love music so much, is that Dre told me he never really emotionally understood or could connect with music until psychedelics it was just a life. pretty sound <laughs> but when people was like oh i feel that song i'm like okay cool I'm like i i i understand but i didn't <laughs> <laughs> and but afterwards it was just like a punch in the heart like listening to things it was like 
I get it. It's sort of um, painted emotion. It's like, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it was a life-changing experience. Wow. Not, not being, knowing that I didn't understand music my whole life until that point. Like, and you only realize it afterwards. It's one of the, and because it also has, speaks to a lot of things. You sort of think, is there anything else I don't understand that I think that I'm sure I understand? And that someday something will switch. I'm like, oh, that's what it was. So that it kind of opens your eyes to the possibility that I could be hiding anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, fundamentally changed my life. Um, possibly the most, imp well, definitely amongst the top experiences of anything that's ever happened to me. It just made me a better person. I saw a, um, it was a short video on Facebook and it was an excerpt of a Graham Hancock interview and it was basically a diatribe about how these types of drugs can create such profound shifts in people. But there's still, I think, society isn't anywhere close to being accepting of substances like that mm -hmm. because they're still so kind of foreign to people. So what would you say to people who think that, you know, these are just drugs that shouldn't be taken? Well, if you think that, you probably shouldn't take them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you probably, you're definitely not ready. Um, and I think it's just a byproduct of society. It, it, it will always be kind of like that because they alter our perception. They make us question the social order and our assumptions. Mm -hmm. That is dangerous to society. It is definitely dangerous because society works sort of because we have agreed upon conventions. The moment you start stirring that, there is danger. There is, you know, uh, to the establishment, the hippie culture of the 60s was like a, a crazy danger to stamp out. Mm. You know, they, they saw it as a gateway to communism and socialism and all sorts of things that to them was horrible. And even these days, like, even if it was perfectly all like lovey-dovey in today's society, it would be so in a structured way because most people follow. They don't, they, 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 don't, they don't have that kind of like, what if everything's wrong kind of mentality. And to establish a place where people think, what if everything's wrong, even in a loving society would be dangerous because then there'll be some people going, well, what if we shouldn't be loving? What if we should be capitalist? <laughs> and so I think they'll always be kind of, seen that way. I don't think they'll ever be fully, fully accepted because they can make even the most simple assumptions such as, well, I don't have to be nice to my parents. They were horrible to me. Maybe I can leave home. Like no one's going to think that it's a great idea to hand <laughs> these out because they had those profound life questioning effects and we like things to be steady. I think that there's also the it, things may change more not just with the research that's going on with organizations like like maps they're now in phase three clinical trials with mdma to treat um, ptsd and um it's, it's pretty effective with depression as well i can attest <laughs> um but the what changes is that the more people talk about it as well i think it's it's maybe got some similarities with um well actually i, I was going to say like coming out of the closet but people but, but actually I was reading this book, um, nonfiction by Terry Pratchett, 
And he said, I didn't really know this, that cancer was the thing that people just didn't talk about. People would die after a long illness in the newspapers. Mm. It, was, it was seen as like shameful or like taboo or something you just didn't know. We don't talk about cancer. So I guess that's in like the, the 50s and 60s and maybe even later, I'm not, I'm not too sure. But now, you know, we're all aware of that and know that it can hit anyone, anywhere, at any time, really. Um, so when it becomes a thing that you know someone who has that experience mm. and you know it humanizes it. So if you think, oh, those crazy hippies who take the psychedelics, they're useless parts of, they're a part of a world that I don't understand and haven't seen and don't really like. And then if someone that you know, you already know is an interesting person who's on your wavelength and fulfills whatever criteria you have for being a good person, and then you realize, oh, well, they've taken psychedelics and they say it was really enriching for them as a person and come to think of it, they do seem kind of calmer <laughs> recently, <laughs> then it becomes different. Now it's suddenly within your horizon of understanding mm. and which is why there's kind of this, this push from like, uh, I guess like psychedelic societies and so on to say, come out of the psychedelic closet mm. and, and say, and anyone I think who's taken psychedelics, uh, would tell you that it's okay it can be amazing exciting and thrilling in various ways but it can also be absolutely terrifying it's not it's not simply fun the idea say of, of taking to me of, of you can't take ayahuasca in a party scenario apparently some people have but they're insane like like you vomiting you could be shitting yourself like the doors of perception uh, have been thrown open and you're being hurled through them um a lot of it is it's deep emotional difficult work and even with something like MDMA it's not exactly a psychedelic but has sort of related positive effects. Um, there are plenty of stories of people saying well they took MDMA as a, they were going to a party and suddenly something really powerful came up, some emotional thing, some memory they hadn't thought about and everyone around them is like shut up, you know we're here to party, stop trying to share this this thing. So how how you use these things, why you use them, completely determines, like hugely determines the experience, the effect, the why. I mean, the same way as like people point out that you can, you can abuse anything. You, uh -huh. could, you can drink so much water, you will die. That doesn't mean we need to ban water. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, on, <laughs> somewhere uh, on the internet, there's child porn, ban the internet. Like, well, you're kind of, you're mixing things too too widely together and when we say drugs we think bad but we then ignore the fact that that's covering that's like saying food yeah <laughs> you know there's a, a wide variety of effects that food can have on you and some some is fatal to some people and not to others and it and what's the line like every everything the difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose yeah but we do this all the time even the word natural Art, <laughs> you know, like uh, you know, belladonna, like poison is like natural. Techn technically, arsenic is natural. It's found, <laughs> you know, but you might not want to, you know, put it inside you. Like, but people use it as a way to say good. Yeah, and like we do that all, all the time. Natural. We have these class words that we use to um, emotionally sort of judge something. That's just a human trait that happens all the time. Medicine, that's one of the people, one of the, I think it was Brian actually, that 
prefers to call ayahuasca medicine instead of plant or, medicine. Uh, plant medicine instead of drug or something mm -hmm. because because of the connotation of the word drug. But you know, it's yeah. just a, it's just a word. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do you um, determine kind of like when you're going to use these things, if that makes any sense? So, like, uh, I feel as though it might be time for my next ayahuasca. You know, is, is, well, is, 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 I suppose my, my question is like, once you've done it once, is that ample or is it something that you'll repeat? And how do you then decide on when you're going to be taking it again? What I like with um, the way that the, I hear people talking about ayahuasca and the way that the shaman that I, I work with talked about it is you work with ayahuasca. So it's, it's not a thing that you take it and suddenly you're done. It's, you wouldn't go to the gym once yeah. and expect to then have the perfect physique. That doesn't mean you also need to go like three times a week to the psychedelic gym. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that, but it's something... I think I'm overtraining. I think I'm overtraining. Is this my hand? What is a hand? Um, it's more this uh, awareness that it, it, it's, it could be a spring clean for you. It could be that you feel like you've you've integrated the insights that you've had. Maybe those insights are, I, I don't care enough for myself or I need to, be, need to be more loving for the people around me. You've made that change. And having done that, almost like achieving anything, you go, okay, so what's next? And then maybe you go back and you ask some different questions and you, you will have a different experience every time, really, because it's not like you'll suddenly go right back to the same place and have the, unless perhaps you didn't do what part of you really knows you need to do. And <laughs> it's like, hey. <laughs> um, so I definitely, I feel the, the, that I should, um, and I want to go back and, and work more with ayahuasca, but it's the, and, and I think the, this year, I, th I thought it would be sooner, but practicalities got in the way, but also my feeling changed, like, yeah, maybe I, I've got some other things to focus on right now. Maybe I don't need to go and shake up the snow globe again. But I've, I've worked with different um, psychedelics sort of towards this goal of trying to get down to the core of, well, why do I have experienced whatever the words would be, depression? Why do I feel suicidal? Why does, what are the core problems or I don't know what to call them, like that, that make me experience things yeah. in this way. Mm -hmm. um, what I, I think I, I said the other day was it, something about the, the feeling of, yeah, I think I need to go work with something again is, it's almost like if you've been sitting around for a long time, you're like, I need to stretch my legs. Like I can sort of feel, but as with most things with, with like psychedelics or stuff, people have enough experienced unless you have experienced it it's hard to say what i'm talking about <laughs> it's only by allegory <laughs> yeah yeah um but you can recognize a bit like psychedelic art you go well, i sort of get what you're doing it's not really what i experience but i sort of know what you're what you're channeling here mm. but if you've never been in the space it's very strange uh -huh. yeah. i think of it in similar terms but i, I also have a kind of a more tangible sort of measuring stick to kind of decide whether it's time or not and it's related on a couple of things first of all have i loaded my brain with new information that i could use some help sorting out 
like have I learned more have I grown more or maybe have I gone back to bad behavior or have I learned new bad behavior that made me need sorted so is there more inside of me that you know because to me psychedelics give me the ability to kind of just have a mind map of everything. Everything kind of gets sorted. Like I see ideas and things just kind of happening as if it was a projection screen to infinity. And it kind of slots it all in the right place. So, and I have ideas, thoughts, it, it expands my mind, it, it increases my intelligence, it, it makes me think about everything that I was learning or thinking about and it integrates it. So that it makes it really instinctive. So it's no longer an active process, it just comes out from unconscious mm -hmm. sort of learning type scenarios. So that's particularly useful for enhancing your own cognition, sort of, you know, um, programming your brain a little bit. So that's useful. But also there's the being more centered and present and enlightened sort of part. And that is different. That is when your voice in your head gets too loud, the one that speaks with language, the one that overthinks, that tells, tells you all the time things if you're depressed maybe it says you're worthless if you're an overthinker maybe it says what did you think about me do you think he was doing this do you think he was doing that oh, I don't know about that like it, th that voice mm -hmm. that speaks it speaks with language it speaks in English or whatever language you speak and you think is your consciousness it's not it is just the voice your consciousness is deeper and that's just the press office so there's a, <laughs> a doctor I can't remember he's been on London Rio but he says that that part of your brain is the press office, whereas the Oval Office, the president, is the part that doesn't have a voice. I think it was Rory Sutherland that said that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, sure. yeah. but it's true. There's, it, that's a particular way of imagining it. But there's, it's, it's true because the language center can speak and it narrates things after they happen, mm -hmm. not before. So you pick up a glass and then the brain quickly says, you picked up a glass, you're thirsty. <laughs> But it wasn't that part that made you feel thirsty. It wasn't that part that decided to pick up the glass. And psychedelics make that voice quiet. They eliminate that anxiety, that messiness, that untidiness. It's like someone came and cleaned out your room. And suddenly you're like, oh, that's my book. I lost that. Oh. Or, you know, like, oh, that's right. I do have that you know, set of clothes. I forgot about that. They were in my washing and I left them there for eight months. It's, it's that on a mental level. And you hear your inner voice rather than your constant voice when that happens. It makes the, 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 the this annoying kind of thing that you keep thinking, this, this is who I am. It makes that go quiet. You think, actually, I'm so much more. I can <laughs> hear the other stuff now. Oh, this is what I want. This is what I'd like to do. This is who I am. I am. That comes out loudly. And so whenever the voice, the other voice gets too loud, I know it's time to make it go a little bit quieter. But, but how, how does it do that then? How do you find that it does that? The, the quieting. Oh, because it removes the filter when you're taking it. Um, so my, my, my poison of choice, because I find it most effective and I like the happiness also that comes with it is LSD. I find that I got the most work done with that particular psychedelic. Um, it removes, well, all psychedelics do this, but I find it strong, very, very strong on LSD. It removes the brain filter, the conductor of the orchestra that is your mind. And so everything in your mind plays as loud as it wants, whatever it wants. So all the kind of bits that you repress, all the kind of thoughts that you kind of hold back, 
gets shouted at you and pass through your consciousness and they get expressed and tired and suddenly they go, cool. They don't need to speak anymore. They've said their piece. So maybe there's a yeah. part of you that wants to shout loudly, like, um, I don't know, maybe like, um, expressing yourself is really important to you, but you kind of keep it quiet. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, and then it, it gets shouted at, at you so loudly during the psychedelic experience. And then you're like, okay, I got it. I'll do something about it. <laughs> okay? And that part of your brain goes, cool. I just wanted to tell you that. Now I've told you that. I'm good. That's, that's really beautiful. And that, is, uh, that, that, that rings very true for me. And, and sometimes it can be very negative. I remember like, one day I, I basically I just spent the whole time crying. And I couldn't work out why. And then a friend said, well, maybe you just had some pain that still needed to be expressed. And it doesn't matter where it came from. And afterwards, like, sometimes it's good to have a good cry. You know, sometimes you need to let go of some tension that it doesn't matter anymore where it came from. It's like if you, I don't know, if you burnt something when you were cooking, it doesn't matter what you burnt anymore. You need to open the windows mm -hmm. and let the smoke <laughs> out. <laughs> you know, and then the smoke is the smoke. It's its own thing. Let it out. Wow. We're all dropping acid after this, right? I want acid right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really amazing. Um, I haven't had any um, psychedelic experiences of my own. It, the whole quieting the mind thing, I tend to maintain a fairly quiet mind. I don't know that, whether that's just my mind tends not to be that terribly active anyway. or um, But it's something that I'd be really... So no, I'm certainly, I'm, I'm very interested in it. And I would certainly never condemn anyone for wanting to use them. I think a lot of people go immediately to that instinct of like, oh, these guys are like hippies, like look at them talking about their druggies. <laughs> and you're just like, come on, like live and let live. I mean, if you don't feel a desire or an interest to do it, and it's a, the kind of, oh, you know, well, I could if I don't mind, then I don't think, you, you need to, or maybe it would be interesting once to sort of see what, what, what's, what's there. But you definitely don't feel that you, you ought to. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have a kind of feeling like, no, absolutely not, that kind of rejection that maybe implies there's something worrying about it to you, maybe that's something to think about. Maybe it doesn't mean you take anything, but maybe it's something to think about. Like, why do you have that kind of strong rejection reaction? Yeah. Why are you worried about finding who you really are? <laughs> yeah. Why are you worried about, you know, figuring out that maybe... Because clearly you fear that that's probably the case. And that, may, that, that warrants some, definitely some soul searching. Yeah. If you think, no, I have a feeling that deep inside of me, I don't like anything about who I am or what I do. You're like, yeah. well, you know. Like, when I tell people I'm going for one month to a, a meditation retreat at a Buddhist monastery and there's going to be no internet, all the mm. like, hours of meditation a day, so many people said to me, I would hate that. That sounds awful. How will you manage that? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I imagine that it's, okay, it, it was challenging in various ways, but I'm like, it sounds quite peaceful. But they're like, no, I would hate that. Oh my God, having to just be alone with my own thoughts. And, but they said that as though that was kind of fine. Now they're going to get set about their business and get back to work in their day. And I'm like, I think you're not okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might need to relax and maybe talk to someone about mm. this. It's very common though. There are some yeah. people that cannot be alone with their thoughts at all. Like they, they require either constant company, you know, or perhaps they bury themselves in work. 
Mm. I know a few people like that. People that will just, if something is accomplished, then they can't even enjoy it. They'll just step to something else. Because to them, it wasn't about getting the accomplishment. To them, it was about keeping their mind busy. <laughs> and so when the yeah. thing finishes, it's like, oh shit, all those things that I don't want to think about or deal with. Yeah. So next thing, but that's, let's work some more. That's basically psychosis. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are in that space though. You know, and, and a lot of them are really proud because it becomes part of their identity. <laughs> I'm so busy. You know, I'm a hard worker. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm busy all the time. We never, it never stops over here, those kinds of statements. But I know I'm not free of this because like I, I said to you that part of what I discovered on that retreat was that my mind wants to worry. It is disturbed <laughs> if there's nothing to worry about. So it will find something that maybe yesterday was fine and worry. And it's so intense and terrifying. And it came up in some of the teachings as well that some, we perhaps through, I don't know, is it society? Is it just some part of how some of us grow up, a part of the human condition that you're like, I really feel that there should be something to be anxious about. Things surely can't be okay. It's like when, when people can't enjoy their holiday even because they feel guilty for something or they're already thinking that it's going to end soon and can't be just like, oh, switch off leave it be so awareness of that is the first step but I know that I'm 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 at that step <laughs> I'm aware of it I'm like you're worrying again I'm like yes I'm really worried oh, man, it's, it's, it's really uh, it's so complicated and it's, it's really difficult to navigate um, have you listened to um, I'm sure you have like sort of spiritual teachers and their take on the whole experience of the mind you know, like Eckhart Tolle and all these types of uh, spiritual gurus. I still need to get to Eckhart Tolle because pe people were, were telling me about him. And I think there's some stuff there about how it's a bit like an having an addiction, like a kind of yeah. go to AA therapy style addiction, but to negative thoughts. So I, I think mm. there's something in there that, that for me that I need to look at. I found that podcasts really have been that sort of access to the spiritual discussions, reflections. People like Daniele Bolelli, um, Aubrey Marcus, Joe Rogan often, mm -hmm. really, and um, uh, Nick Gabriel's, or Gregoriadis, back yeah, to that yeah. name, his, his <laughs> digital communion podcast, I find really helpful. Because I think for, for, for me, I have a lot of cool friends, I have a lot of cool conversations, but not that many where we go, okay, let's, sit and talk for an hour or whatever about how we understand what our self is <laughs> and because most people they'll do it a little bit but they just kind of want to get away from it kind of it's uncomfortable it's strange or or they're just bored or they don't want to think about that so podcasts for me are sort of this the the wider community where i'm kind of in the conversation even if i'm not speaking yeah i think looking for the other people that think like that is why we're all in this room right now. Yeah. That's certainly why I found London Real, and I know it's where you found London Real. I don't know about you. And that's how I met you through London Real. Yeah. And it, it was all about, it was just, oh, look, there's other people that are, I mean, I'm, I don't even need to agree with their particular answer on that, but they're asking the question. Mm -hmm. They're looking for answers. They're trying to figure things out. They're being chilled about it. They're exploring. Like, it's hard to, connect with people that think like that because they tend to be the minority. And the internet has allowed all sorts of niche communities to come together. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
we're, I think we're a little bit cooler than, say, furries, but maybe we're just as weird to other people. <laughs> Poor furries. They're always the thing people, pulls out, people pull out as, like... <laughs> They're an easy target, to be fair. <laughs> you never know. I don't know. Maybe I'll enjoy it. Maybe. Maybe it'll so be a special episode. It's true. Like, I, I found that with... Um, in, in the depths of her total despair, a friend of mine said, you should listen to some podcasts. I was like, what the fuck are podcasts? <laughs> and just the awareness, as well as the quality of the conversations, but the awareness, people are out there having conversations about stuff that I'm interested in, but maybe don't know anything about yet. I found so refreshing and exciting and that it's through the longer format, the way that people can open up well beyond just a 10 minute sort of sound bite interview mm -hmm. um and something i really like about uh, duncan trussell's podcast the duncan trussell family hour is that as an interviewer whilst it can be funny and crazy and silly when emotional things happen he is fine with silence and he'll just leave the thing running and he he was for example he interviewed his mother twice as she was dying from cancer very close to the end and they had these truly emotional moments it makes me feel a little catch in my throat just thinking about it and he just left the recorder on and then they'll be silent for maybe a minute maybe two minutes and then it'll be like yeah and then continue and that kind of level of reality we don't even get in movies or kind of the art where people go let's show the emotion mm. Mm. well I've not listened to that podcast and um, Duncan stuff I'm familiar with his work through Joe Rogan but I need to check that out. That's pretty Jesus. spiritual as well. Yeah. Oh. Mm. He also um, pointed out that if uh, so recent like, MRI type scans showed that under the influence of LSD, your brain reverts to that of a young child and it's uh, what shows up on an MRI anyway, it's childlike state. And he said, oh, so clearly what we need now is to create cages to catch newborn babies and incarcerate them because they're experiencing an illegal state of, con of consciousness. <laughs> so until they get to seven years old, they need to be locked up because they are a danger. And he's right, that's the logical <laughs> consequence. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. So, so when did you guys decide that you were going to start your own podcast? What was, how did that sort of converge? We did our first recording almost exactly a year ago. -ish. Yeah, we toasted to that we, last night. Yeah, when did we decide? It was a little bit before. Yeah, I think, well, I think it, it had to be January, right? So we decided it in, in January and then started it, yeah. rather than decided it earlier. Well, because I, I was out of the country. I was in right. America. You came back. And I came back in the beginning of January, and then we were hanging out. I remember out. That, 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 that sort of Skype call, I guess it was. Because you weren't sure what to do. Yeah, I was. I, I was going to be taking up some research fellowship in Washington, and I was just super angsty. What What I now understand is, I simply didn't want to do it, but I didn't feel like it was possible not to do it. Like I didn't feel like I had a, a reason that I could give people that they would accept, and that it says so much about me like to myself this idea of not being the idea basically it's rejection so the fact that I could go I simply don't want to do it and they're like well you're a terrible person I feel rejected that's terrifying to me although I break it down like that it doesn't sound terrifying but what I experience emotionally 
I was just like, try and avoid it at all costs. Um, which did, is... Did we discuss on that call that if you... Because you were asking me for advice and I said, I can't remember at what point we, just, we said something about, like, if you come back, we'll do what... We called it Dre therapy. Yes. Yes. Yes, you did. It was, I think. On, it was on a call or around New Year. I was there for okay. at your place. So through my own experiences with psychedelics and my own biomedical studies, I'd come up with what I thought was a protocol for curing depression and using kind of the same techniques that, that uh, MAPS uses, you know, like psycho-assisted, uh, sorry, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and analysis, but more than that, sort of combining several different types of psychedelics at different times. So starting with a particular drug and then doing another one later in particular sequence mm -hmm. and for a particular length of time. And I suggested we try it out. And that's kind of where we started talking a bit more closely. And we ended up also deciding to start the podcast. But I think originally we'd set aside time to sort of work on helping John mm -hmm. sort of get past some of his difficulties. I was in a fairly catastrophic state at that point as well. The, like the anxiety of the, like, oh, I don't want to do that, that bit of research. Wait a minute. I don't want to do any of this research stuff. Wait a minute. I don't think I want to be in academia. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what do I do next? What do I do instead? And the past year has been a kind of trying to find some of that out. And the podcast is definitely one of the things I do want to do instead. Like I yeah. knew I wanted to start a podcast. I knew I wanted to have conversations. I knew I wanted to, but the way I think of it, when people say, well, you know, what, what do you want to do? I want to make cool shit and share it with people. <laughs> and that can manifest in whatever ways, but that's the core. I want to make the cool shit and I want to share it with people. And that sounds like like being human to me. Like aside from your like your everyday sort of survival needs and things that are important, well what else are we here to do? Like if we the we have culture which separates us from animals that don't have that let's make cool shit and share it kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think culture is simply that. It's like, I did this thing. Look, <laughs> I did this thing. Maybe I felt I had to. Maybe it came from pain. Maybe it came from something else. But we create these things because it is part of our experience of experiencing of ourselves, of the world, whatever. Um, and so we were talking about wanted to make a podcast, do our own thing, but didn't know exactly what it was. And then um, we definitely, we talked a bunch about Robert Greene and his books um, because they were another part of like Dre's story of like, how do I understand how people work? Like, yeah. How, learning how to human, which yeah. is our, our tagline now. Um, and, but I feel like without even being autistic, I need this stuff too, because I have trouble understanding how people are like, I will be predicting and projecting how I think they're perceiving me and what they're going to do. And it's all wrong, not all. I suppose I think that I am actually pretty sensitive and intuitive about how people are experiencing the situation and interaction, but it goes too far or gets exaggerated or they're not in the room and I'm assuming what they might be thinking. Um, so those books were helping me reading them and understanding how people kind of manipulate you, whether they do it intentionally or not. And so the book, maybe the book was sitting on the table. Um, well, I think... I think because we were thinking, like, what, what, what do we do? What do we talk about? Yeah. And, and I, and I think I mentioned that I wanted to talk about ideas, 
and things. Mm. And I thought that it would be good to start to be specific, to pick one thing and kind of talk about it. Mm -hmm. And we just threw out a bunch of different things. And that was one of them. Yeah, we could talk about the book, we talk about the laws and so yeah. on. And then uh, I'd already bought a, a microphone to sort of set this up. And Dre was like, okay, well, let's just talk about the first law, the first law of power and just go from there. And I remember that through the whole thing, I was thinking of it as this is just like a test, <laughs> like a pilot thing. We're not actually releasing this. That's the first episode. <laughs> and, and it's one of the most popular. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> got the most downloads so far. Really? Yeah. And so what's your um, system for doing the podcast? Like, did you do them, you, you do them on, a, on a certain frequency and then release them? As parent. Yeah, so from my own experiences, I knew that there had to be had to be a regular thing to start establishing a relationship of this is what we do. Um, but also we had to accumulate a certain amount of work before we started releasing because when you want release, you want to have a body of content so that people, if people like it, they've got more to listen to. Mm -hmm. So we started recording in January, we only released in June. Uh, but from January to June, we almost every single Tuesday recorded an episode. Something like that, yeah, more or less. And when we released it, we had, uh, we released a bunch at the same time, and then we also had enough in the can to continue releasing one every week after that. And then extras as well, because we had the, the, the flexibility to do that, yeah. other bits of, of content. <laughs> That's brilliant planning. And the, the, the kind of strategy that I push to anyone that I give advice to over anything, but definitely for podcasting, is don't try too hard, like, start, like do it. Record one thing, even if it's on your phone, and next time improve one thing. Next time improve one thing. Next time improve one thing. It doesn't have to be a big improvement. Could well, be I think one mic, two mics. Yeah. You know, like, and then ca one camera, two camera, <laughs> you know. And yeah. If you try to do it all at once, you're just gonna fail because multiple cameras will fail, the sound won't record, you'll forget to do this, you'll like you because you haven't done any of it before. And you'll make a crap show because you'll be thinking about all this other stuff. Or you might never start because you're like, yeah, I don't have enough cameras yet. Yeah. I definitely need my show to have twenty cameras. <laughs> so until I have twenty cameras, I'm not starting out. But I, I uh, what fascinates me still is the sort of the the psychological aspect of where I remember the moment that we had it where we like we we published mm. and we we're like oh my god it's a thing <laughs> it, <laughs> it exists is, now it's a thing yeah. I mean it's, but we had like a, pre, a precursor to that where we were recording where we talked about having a podcast we'd said what it could be and then because Dre just went okay let's do this now suddenly it was a thing that we get together and we record and it it's it is on paper, very simple. Okay, you need to keep recording or you need to do that. Psychologically, it's huge. It's like thinking about, oh, I'd like to go to the gym. And actually, you're in the gym, you're like, oh, oh, here I am, like stuff's going on. Suddenly, I'm in a different situation and, and there's a momentum behind me, which means that you start, you create your own habit, I guess, of actually creating. Mm -hmm. So if, if you recorded from January to June, have you already finished the 48 Laws? No, because life happens. Yeah. So we recorded a lot of stuff, but we've finally now caught up with ourselves. Right. We're only one episode ahead at the moment. Yeah, there was a slight issue of me going away for like six or seven weeks to, 
to Nepal. <laughs> and then a few so, times where, for whatever reason, we couldn't like, yeah, record. And slowly, we caught ourselves up. So now we we, get, we we're well, but now we're also in a position to do it better because. John has eliminated almost all of the responsibilities from his life that he didn't want to deal with. <laughs> and I have gotten rid of the thing that would often take 12 to 16 hours of my day every single day of every single week. You know, oh. uh, has been a big part of my life, but I'm glad that it's over. I'm glad that now I get to focus on my own thing. Uh, it's funny, like since I've quit, I've heard at least at least once every couple of days, somehow it's come up. Like some, a video will say it or a person mentions the quote of, if you're not building your own dream, someone else will hire you to build theirs. Yeah, yeah. Like uh -huh. ever since I quit, yeah, I just kept yeah. hearing. And it, you know, like it's obviously, I'm probably more receptive to it. And it's probably a concept that people are thinking more and more, but it did feel like that kind of coincidence, not coincidence kind of feeling of like, it keeps coming up. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Because it takes up time. Like you can only, one of the laws is focus. You concentrate your forces. Hmm. I was trying to have like a steady kind of job-ish whilst do my own thing, trying to get back in shape because I had some injuries. You know, I was trying to do all these things at the same time and it's just a bit much. It's a bit much. You have to spin all these plates and it's hard to keep them all going. And so now, now we'll have a lot more time and a lot more energy to focus on just growing this idea that's kind of taken a life of its own. <laughs> the tricky thing is that whilst, so you, you hear all this kind of um, advice that tells you, like, uh, I feel bombarded with things going, you know, just go for your dream. The, the regret <laughs> that most people have on their deathbed is they didn't allow themselves to have enough fun or take that risk or nobody ever on their deathbed said, I wish I'd never, you know, given that thing a shot that I wanted to do. Whatever, however it turned out, generally they'll go, well, you know, I tried, I found something out. But this moment where you go, am I going all in or not? I described this to you mm -hmm. where you go, I think you'll be thinking about this. <laughs> you quit your job, you want to focus on this. The moment where you go, okay, is this the moment where I go all in and I go, yes, this is the success, this is fantastic, I needed to give it all my focus and it's great. Or you go, all my money is gone <laughs> and <laughs> this has gone nowhere as a complete, complete disaster and I put everything into it. And unfortunately, it's the same moment. You have no control over what happens next, yeah. but when you're, and it sounds obvious, but when you're in it, mm -hmm. it it's like all those things where people tell you the, the advice, but when you experience it yourself, like when people tell you things about your relationship and you're in it and you're like, you don't understand. <laughs> There's that worry that you're in that part of the story that is, John had just quit his job to focus on his dream. Little did he know. No. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be in that part of the story. <laughs> but how do you know? So, but the nightmare yeah. for me, I think what, what haunts me the most is the image of where I could otherwise be, which is I'm like working uh, a sort of desk job thing with regular hours, with a regular paycheck, and all I do is come home at the end of my nine to five, I get home, um, whether I'm like have a partner or not, and I sit down and I watch a DVD box set on Netflix, and I go to bed and then I get up and I do the same thing. And then on the weekend, maybe I watch more Netflix. And all that my life revolves around is planning a week break somewhere. And that, that, that seems to be most people's lives. 
it, I hate it. I'm not saying, maybe, maybe you, whoever's listening, maybe they hate it too. Maybe some people love it, whatever. Just to me, that is, I don't want to do that. That feels like turning me off and just being what I feel that I've grown up in a culture that it tells me that that's what I should do. And that's like happiness and fulfillment. But I feel that's like taking the bits that are me in this body and going off. Mm. But it's like cake. It's also attractive. I'm like, just think of every, every element in culture would then tell me, you're fine, you're doing the right thing, you know, it's comfortable. And you're like, actually, Netflix is great. I really like this cake. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it's very appealing in that way, so it scares me. The hilarious part is that that socially acceptable, don't worry, life is fine because you have a job, you've pumped mm. out 2.5 kids and everything's good, and you're going on holiday for you know, a week. That is no longer an effective strategy. We're at a turning point in society where mm. doing that doesn't get you enough money to go on holiday. Yeah, um, <laughs> you don't own your house. Your job you makes no sense to anyone and it'll probably be automated or replaced by computers. You know, we're at a point where that dream that was sold to our fathers and their families or their, our grandfathers no longer like is viable. It's, it's going to go away at some point in the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so what happens then? What happens to those people that are perfectly comfortable yeah. <laughs> having a desk job that will no longer exist? I was hanging out with some old school friends the other day and we were thinking about, there was a whole job at our school for an AV technician who was quite an old dude who would just, you know, wheel in the TV set and put the VCR in and had minimal <laughs> technical ability. And I thought he got it just right because he must have retired at the point where his job will not exist <laughs> any further. But there's so many people in that situation and they maybe don't realize it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, completely. It's like a tsunami's coming and people are totally oblivious to it. Which is kind of scary for a lot of people. But um, it interests me because, I mean, podcasts um, are notoriously different, uh, difficult to generate an income from, mm. I certainly sort of think that myself. And what are your, what's your vision for it and what are your plans to try and make it um, sustainable? Sustainable. Well, there's a few things. So it's becoming easier to monetize a little bit um, if, if you're with a certain, like this agencies that bundle together advertising. If you're okay with advertising, if uh -huh. you don't mind having, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, Dre and John only drink this whiskey. <laughs> uh, and if we get some of the whiskey, then yeah, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, so it, because it gets bundled with other shows, you don't have to have millions of listeners. So you might be able to get enough money to kind of keep it going, you know, a little end sponsorship as well. And I think podcasting is going to have a resurgence. Mm -hmm. So it had a bit of a lull, I think, between probably 2008 till now. Like it kind of went a little bit down unless you were a big player. Whereas before it was like the thing you did, you list on the Internet, you'd listen to those. But I think it's going to come back up. I think that I think it's starting to and it'll be a little bit easier as well. It's also gonna become more standardized. In the UK, it was quite small compared to the US. I think that's gonna change a little bit as well. But outside of that, you know, sell an advert or have a sponsor, I think there's a lot of opportunities there to build a brand and connect you with interesting people. So, like, I've, we've been thinking about selling my expertise in, you know, helping, you know, create and take a podcast to the level that London Real is today as a thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And 
that'll be the way we pay, we keep the lights on, but we're still doing our artistic endeavor. And it kind of fits in with it. We have a podcast. We know how to build one. We can build one for you. Contact us. Yeah. Um, so you could find some kind of niche that you're an expert in. Could be the topic that you're talking about. So if you have a very niche topic, like if we continued with, let's say, strategy, that we talk about the 48 laws of power, we could continue on that theme mm -hmm. and then paint ourselves as the people to talk to for strategy consulting. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps. Or you parlay it into something else. You have a large following of some kind and you sell the brand to someone that has money and needs that following for a different reason. You know, there's, there's, there's so many possibilities there. You're only limited by your imagination, huh. but it takes time. It just takes time to build that up. Um, but having an audience is very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. It's very, very powerful. And it might not be directly monetizable, or you might even want to directly monetize it because you don't want to piss them off. You know, selling at your people, it's not good. Yeah. But there are people that are willing to invest in you or what you've built if you've built something impressive. And you just got to keep doing it. At some point, it will be big enough to, to make something out of it. It's just the expectation that you'll have the same kind of income as a nine to five job right away or within a year or two. Maybe, maybe not. It's also a startup. And yeah. something like 90% of startups fail. <laughs> so I'm sure 90% of podcasts also fail. Yeah, one episode and, and you're gone. So I think you have an, an example of like, say Aubrey Marcus, CEO of Onnit, has an amazing podcast. So okay, he already had, had he'd built Onnit, but his podcast, I, I think, has probably led to much more than it, it would appear. So because I feel so invested in Aubrey, I've listened to him for hundreds of hours, and he's given me so much, I guess, uh, how to describe it. I have learned so much from him. And I feel like I, I, I know him in a way. It's that weird one-sided relationship you get in this podcasting that uh, people will know you or you feel you really know them. Um, but when he said he was launching a course called Go For Your Win, um, which was going to be a book, now it's a course, um, I didn't even need to look at the price tag. And I'm not someone with a bank account where that's usually a sensible thing to think. <laughs> I'm like, Aubrey's running a course, you know, provided he's not asking $1,000 or something. And it's like $250 or something, which is a lot of money to me. But I'm like, Aubrey's doing it. I'm in. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing that you can nurture simply by honestly and truly creating art that connects with other people and where you like, I'm giving you this stuff because it's cool to do it and I want you to be on board with me. That's your 1,000 true friends type thing, mm. you know? When, when I built the London Real Academy, which helped turn London Real from just a podcast into a business, oh. when, when I created that site uh, and we launched it uh, about a year and a half, something, to almost, well, whatever it was, um, the first like 100, 200 people, we, we asked them a few questions. Most of them didn't even know what it was going to be. <laughs> but the moment London Real said, there's a thing that you can pay us for, yeah. they were like, I was, I was one of those years. years. <laughs> Here's some money, thank you. Yeah. The, the initial people. Oh. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good feeling when you get that kind of fanatical support. I think it's a model that, that is going to continue. So a friend of mine who, who listens to various podcasts, he likes the fact that some have a subscription model where he pays like $5 a month um, and you get three podcasts on their like mini network. 
they, they end up coming out for free for everyone, but you get them first, maybe a week or so in advance, and you don't have to hear all the ads. But really, he, he likes it because he gets to support them. He loves what they do, and they provide a way in which you can support. But it seems something that works a bit differently from just saying, from asking for donations, you know, which we've, we've tried, we've heard other people do. And generally, I don't think that that's very successful. You'll get like a few people, your true fans will go, yeah, you know, I'll, like you'll set up a recurring payment of like a few dollars or something. But that's different. It feels weird. But then it's like a charity sort of feeling rather than here is a formalized agreement where like you, you're a subscriber and you're getting something specific in yeah. response. Mm -hmm. It's tricky. It's like it's playing psychology games here. Yeah, yeah. I, I could just give you this money, <laughs> but we need to find some way in which it's okay. Give me a reason. Yeah, we, like, you know how it's hard to, to give things away to people? Like, I've got this old settee, I don't need it anymore. Maybe Gumtree's changed this a bit, but it used to be a problem like, well, I'll, I'll just give it to you for free, I don't want it. People actually, I think on Gumtree even, would rather that you wanted a fiver for it. Because something about saying it's worthless means they go, well, it's worthless. <laughs> I don't want it. It's very suspicious. Hmm. We're yeah. weird. Humans are weird. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, I was looking at that quite recently, the perception of value kind of thing. You know, if something's like a thousand pounds, even if it's, you know, the same settee, which might be a cast off, if you put a massive price tag on it, people will be like, oh, wow, it must be amazing. <laughs> it weirds me out because I think I don't think like that, or, or I often don't think like that. I'm sure I do sometimes. But this whole thing that if you put a high price tag on it, people go, this is for real. Now, I understand why that works, but I don't think that it often gets me that way. I'm more like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of our favorite lines. Fuck you, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I think it's one of the most endearing things about the human spirit. Just this defiance, this outrage slash somewhat belligerent defiance at being told what to do, even when it's good for you. And I think that's perfectly, f like some people will be like, oh, but you know, that's bad. But like, no, that's what makes humans interesting. <laughs> this, uh, if I thought of it myself, maybe, but because you've told me, no. <laughs> Stop trying to control me. Because ultimately it's a, I call it like a, if you think of people as software, like every person is their ideas, the collection of all their experiences and thoughts. What people telling you what to do is, it's them trying to write their software over yours. And we are programmed to abhor that because our consciousness rejects it. And I think that's powerful, that's interesting. Well, that's why one of the, like, the central themes of the 48 Laws of Power that we're unpacking in an ebook we're gonna like, give away is that you can't convince people by arguing with them and you can't force them to do the things you want to do you need to get them to see it from a perspective. You need to give a demonstration. You need to plant a seed that then is going to grow on its own. Just show them what's possible. You know, all, the, all those scenes in films where someone has rejected the advice for so long and like, they have a problematic relationship and then they see someone succeeding doing the thing and they're like, wait a minute, that seems to work. Or like, wait a minute, maybe I do have a connection with my parents after all. And I think that's like the crystallization of, of how we work. We need to see it play out and we need to feel like it's a, you know, you can come along if you want, 
rather than a do this, play mm. this way. Mm. 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 Interesting. <laughs> so uh, the, the 40 laws themselves then, I mean, what have been some of the ones for you that have, um, yeah, that have kind of had the greatest influence on, on you? We, so we were thinking about this ourselves and we, we, we like John said, we we're putting it together in a little ebook saying, this is what we found most useful. I think by far the most useful one is say less than necessary. Which we, is funny when a, a long interview podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but this idea, for example, that you, well, you just sometimes just listen. You don't need to talk all the time, uh, but also maybe don't explain everything, like leave a bit of mystery. Like mm -hmm. it's, it recurs in many different ways, in many different aspects of human interaction. Or um, simply not telling someone right away what your plan is. You know, just give them like a, I'm going to start a podcast, but don't tell them what it is, you know, like, a, and funnily enough, by doing that, you, you, you gain more power in many ways because people are more interested. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you're sort of giving information away, there's a perception of low value as well. Yeah. But if you're sort of holding back, but also it gives you more time to be less reactive, to be a more enlightened and sort of Zen type of person. If you're not constantly trying to talk and get your feelings and ideas out, mm -hmm. you just more introspective, more able to observe others, more able to think about what you think as well and decide, mm, I might say this, I might say that, as opposed to just kind of being an uncontrollable force. So th that, that was yeah. one of the most useful ones. Yeah, and it's sort of the, it's the themes that lie in the laws that can be the, the key, like what, what can you distill from them? And one of them which plays into that law, but into many others is you need to take care of the other person's emotional need first. Not what, what, not what my agenda is, not what I want to say, not all of this. What's going on for them? How are they perceiving this situation and, and, and what's important? And, and Dre's been reading this, this book about acting, which really, I uh, think, the helps. The Power of the Actor by Ivana Chabuk. Oh, um, she's right, an yeah. acting coach to like Brad Pitt. She's been on London Real. Yeah. yeah. So the book is really interesting because it, uh, it talks about acting in a way that I think kind of mirrored some of my own thoughts about human psychology in general. So now I've begun to try and apply the teachings to the real world, imagining that every single interaction is a scene and every person is a character <laughs> and they have a character that they portray. Um, and so uh, we were talking about core needs. What is their core need? In, in acting terms, that's called the overall objective. So a, an, a, a particular character might need to feel loved as their overall objective, or they might need to get their power back. People are the same. And so when they talk to you, their interaction with you and what they're trying to say and what they want from you is centered around their overall objective, just as if they were a character. So you meet someone at the pub and you tell them that um, they ask you what you're doing and you say, well, I don't really know. Um, if that's a relevant question and they act defensively towards it, that's because their core need is to feel, let's say, significant and you challenging the premise that their job it defines them in any way, they, sorry, defines you in any way, um, means that maybe they're wrong to define themselves by their job, which is what they feel significant about. Mm -hmm. And therefore, by doing that, you've attacked them as a person and that's <laughs> why they're defensive, you know, and <laughs> that kind of thing. So by addressing their core need to feel significant, by making them feel important and like their job is cool, you've disarmed that and then you can get past that 
huge obstacle that otherwise would be the thing that they keep trying to get from you and you can't get past it because until they feel significant from you, you haven't hit that core need and they, they, they can't think of anything else other than desperately trying to get that from you. In, <laughs> in like the simplest terms I can think of, if, you, if you're meeting someone and you maybe want like advice or help from or so on, but they, they consider themselves a sort of, they're a bit more senior to you in some way, you need to acknowledge the fact that they're doing you a favor. You need to go, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate that. You know, and we, we kind of know that instinctively. And you do that and they're like, oh, that's no problem at all. And then suddenly everything flows. But if you don't do it, they're gonna spend the whole time being like, little fuck, doesn't respect me, doesn't appreciate <laughs> the time that I've given out. Why am I doing this? It can be tiny things, you know. You don't need to necessarily get lost in the they're thinking that I'm thinking that yeah, you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and which was what I was really going to say. Like, at what level does it simply become massively overthinking, very straightforward situations? So, I find that it's the same as pickup artists versus someone who's good at just being charming. There is a learning curve, but it's kind of tough luck. You were supposed to learn it at kindergarten by having lots of interactions and feeling comfortable and so on, and you didn't. Like you, you, you were maybe the nerdy kid or geeky kid, and you didn't spend so much time talking to people. You were more interested in the Lego blocks. You didn't pick <laughs> up those charming social skills. Shit out of luck. You have to learn it from a book. And guess what? It will be kind of mechanical for a while. But if you do it enough and you don't obsess over the steps and you know that they're just shortcuts to get you to skip ahead a little bit so that you can practice then you can practice and if you keep practicing eventually it becomes unconscious learning and then the overthinking goes away and some of the practices until you've you've been told you don't know what to practice yeah. i mean it's like think think back to all at school and everyone's going how do you even have sex because you don't know and you need to sort of be, be told to then there's some instinct stuff that's gonna come in and help you and so on, but there's also information that you really need to know if you're gonna get anywhere. And then you practice, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully you practice. Lots of practice. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. like, usually, um, I'm trying to think, there's, there's quite a few situations where, you know, if you're at point A and you want to get to point Z, um, the best way often to do that is through mentorship. You know, you find somebody who's kind of where you want to be and you just have them kind of handhold you through that process. But is, can that be applied to learning how to be a human and how to be social? <laughs> if you find someone willing to spend that kind of time with you, yeah. I find, I mean, the reason I sort of give up on mentorships, other than virtual ones from like books and podcasts and talking, like see, seeing people that way, like a direct mentorship. I give up on it purely because in this day and age, people don't have fucking time for you. <laughs> yeah. they, gonna, they, they don't have time for you. And like, unless you've got, unless you're like a young kid willing to work for free or something like um, Ryan Holiday did for Robert Greene, you're unlikely to be able to get someone to, that is that senior or interesting to, to be able to be around them that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's a shame that that's no longer the case, but, but yeah, it's, so, it becomes a bit weird and difficult that way. Sorry, I've kind of lost my plot there. I no, forgot I why I was... Like, like, <laughs> no, that kind of addressed it. Yeah, you're probably right. I just, yeah. yeah. No, I'd, I'd love to have like a cool person that is super charming. Like I'd love... So the, in terms of social skills, um, 
even though I suppose they can be seen as quite seedy by some people, I think Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Bill Clinton can are prob probably, th th in my mind, alive today, maybe the most charming people ever. And they've got some particular skills that I know of, like, that. They, so Bill Clinton used to keep like a Rolodex of cards of people that he met with, with details about them, and he'd go through them. And like he'd learn, like he'd rememorize them and so on. So that he's met someone two years later. It's like, hey, Bob, like, how are you doing? Like, great to see you. How's the wife? Like, I remember that she was struggling with such and such. Uh -huh. And he became really, really good at that. And he, but obviously he had also had the Southern charm and all that stuff. But people felt like a, you were the only person in the room. Yeah. Like he was there for the minute that he was talking to you. You're the only person that exists and he's interested in you. And so and when people say things like, this is manipulation, this is bad, but isn't that also beautiful, what just happened? He, care, he genuinely did care enough yeah. to learn that and remember, and remember you, and to make you feel like the only person in the room. So, like, if, 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 <laughs> yes. if I could learn that directly, that would be amazing. But I don't, I, at that level, you know, like, the person's unlikely to be your direct mentor. You have to read about them, maybe look at videos about them and try to pick up their behaviors that way yeah, yeah yeah i think often when there's a lot of focus i keep coming across that you must find a mentor well perhaps you're in a, a phase of your life or in a world in a country and whatever you're just not going to meet someone who's worth being your mentor so don't get one for the sake of it i feel like maybe i've had sort of certain sorts of mentor mostly to do with academia but I don't know where to look for like the mentor beyond that now that I don't want to, to be in that world. Um, and I had the similar, I was thinking when you described this, that making someone feel insecure about their own thing, I've had to stop myself really talking about, to many of my, my friends from the academic world, I shouldn't talk about, I'm leaving it because it makes me fucking miserable and I think most of it's pointless because that's their life. <laughs> <laughs> And it's completely legitimate that, that if that's working for them, then that's fine. But I think we all have this, this habit, and this is what I'm, I've been experiencing, that because you want to reject something and get away from it because it's not making you happy, you want to say it's shit, objectively. But that's not the case. My perception, my interaction with it is not positive. Yeah. Guess what, folks? It's not black and white. And I'm <laughs> bumbling through life, discovering that over and over again. <laughs> And mentors are funny, you know, you will eventually feel like it's a funny relationship. You have to know a few things. For example, you will fall out with them in some way. Either you'll, they'll stop liking you, you'll stop liking them. We know this very well, I think. And, and the first um, law of power is directly about this, yeah. never outshine the master. Uh -huh. And there's other little things that are intricated in that particular aspect and it's it's just a funny relationship mm. so if you were to um like go back in time essentially and, and relive your life to date knowing the information that you have now <laughs> <laughs> i can tell you're probably going to seize up at, at this question i'm going to have a fit yeah like what sort of things would you have done differently uh, I probably would have uh, straight out of high school gone to America um, and just went to LA and worked, like found a day job, worked hard, tried to maybe get into acting and 
tried to um, yeah I would try try to build a power base there for when YouTube hits to become a YouTube personality <laughs> probably <laughs> something like that well it depends what is the knowledge because then you can also invest in things you know but if it's just on a personal level yeah. like you don't have any kind of other things uh -huh. I think so I think I would have worked I would have probably taken more human subjects at school less science I liked science but I probably need I needed the practice of peopling um, that I didn't get until later. But yeah, I probably wouldn't go to university. And I, I would try to go to America and try to base myself in Los Angeles because uh, I, I like the idea of doing stuff on YouTube and it would have been easy to do. I, I, I know what I should have done in, like, in 2006 to be the biggest YouTuber now, like, <laughs> but now it's too late. Yeah. Um, so probably something like that. Maybe. Just to build that kind of power base um, to then do all the other things I want to do. Because I've got big aspirations. And most of my life has been going, well, what is the right way to get there? And getting it wrong. Very, very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I'm no, not anywhere nearer to my l super long-term goals. And now I'm kind of going, hmm, how do, how do I get... Once again, asking myself the question, how do I get there? And if I went back, the way I would get there would be to just start working, start working with people and interacting and, and going where the action is rather than thinking I need to go through formal education and have my degree uh, to be able to then up, up think about, even think about that. Like try to figure it out, practice, do things, improve one thing each time. Like mm. fig maybe I wouldn't have been an actor at all. Maybe I would have done something else. But by starting earlier, by starting earlier, you, you go further. Don't know about you. I think it's tricky when, when looking back, when you go, well, I instinctively think, like, what if I said I wouldn't go to university? I then think, but all those really cool people who are so important to me that I learned so much from, even if I'm not, I wouldn't want to have not met them. And even though I can say hypothetically I would have met other people, um, they're not they don't exist to me in this reality, so I can't, you know, I don't really value them. <laughs> the ones that I did, I do yeah, value. Um, but I think, apart from it, you know, buying lots of Bitcoin, that would have <laughs> been a, a, a wise move. Um, I think if, in, if uh, the right conditions were available, the right sort of psychedelics mentor, I think working <laughs> with them earlier would have been very good for me to not get the grooves as deep as they've become of the negativity and insecurity and feeling worthless and, and so on. Um, I don't know what to think about the whole sort of academia path because so much of the things that drew me to it are really, are truly parts of me. That curiosity and wanting to find things out and trying to like creatively understand questions that keep going around for me like the things that I, I studied for my PhD were about um, how people made sense of their lives under the repressive Stalin regime. Mm. I'm like, well, what the fuck was that like? And all the books I'm reading are not telling me. Like, they're just saying that people are, very, are just terrified because of repressive violence, or they were brainwashed because of the propaganda. And I thought, this is not what people are like. I have not met people who are like this, you know. Maybe one or two, and they were idiots. So let's assume that most people aren't like this. And then I noticed that there was evidence that people were telling jokes all the time. 
in that regime and they would be put away for this. So it's dangerous. So why are they doing it? Well, because they had to. And what did they, they, what can we see of their perception of their reality in those little traces rather than the rest that survives to us, which tends to be them going, I devoutly believe in Stalin or I hate the regime or in memoirs, they're like, I was always against it or what at the time were they saying to each other? And so I wrote a whole PhD about jokes <laughs> that people told in that regime. Why? Because that sort of question fascinates me. And as I think about it now from this perspective, it's also about how do people make sense of their reality? And that seems to be a continuing theme that we're still working on in, in the podcast. It's like discovering how, how to human, how we do it, how we perceive. Um, so I don't know, how does that fit with the, I certainly learned a lot and developed a lot in myself by following that trajectory, but maybe I would have got off the bus earlier and, <laughs> and, and gone in, in different directions. I think what I would definitely uh, have done would be to learn more languages and to have really applied myself and found, found ways to enjoy it because I feel like to, and I know people who can do this, that if you have those languages and you're really good, you can earn your keep pretty straightforwardly by doing translation work freelance. Mm. And then, you know, that's your skill. You've got it. It's in your head. You, you, you don't have to have like premises or complicated things or a nine to five or anything. And then you can go and do, do your, what Neil Gaiman says, make good art. Mm. And that's what I want to be doing. I would have learned how to program. I shied away from that world because uh, I thought I could do more that interested me by going straight to biology, which is what I wanted to achieve long term. But if I'd built, like, if I'd been able to build Angry Birds, for example, or <laughs> something, you know, or even, even code YouTube, it sold for to Google for billions at the time that it did, right? So 2006, yeah, I, 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 you know, if I went to uni to learn coding, would have been 2001, something like that. I could have invented YouTube potentially. Who knows? And then I would have had the money, just like. Elon Musk to build his dreams of Tesla yeah. and like SpaceX and so on. So yeah. he went that way. I was, I was actually, his name came into my head when I was thinking about you mm. with your like, where do you think that sort of massive visioning stuff comes from? Uh, I don't know. My brain just kind of works that way. <laughs> like it'll even work that way on little, little things. Like someone will tell me, yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, starting a small uh, company that sells jams online. And Right away, oh, fuck, it's happening. My brain is starting to think <laughs> like, oh, that's cool. The label should be like this. It should be old fashioned. It should look like that. The marketing should be done like that. The website can work that way. I suppose you could get suppliers to push, like, it has to put the things together and kind of knit it. It's terrifying. <laughs> so that's just what my, my mind does. And it, I like thinking. That's what I enjoy. And there's not enough of a premium put on that. Yeah. You know, just the, I like thinking and I like, you know, putting that out there and realizing that thinking. Now I think, uh, I, I feel like I've grown up in a world that tells me that's not good enough. What are you, what's the real stuff you're putting together? Like, we can't all be philosophers. I'm like, well, I'm sure the actual philosophers were also told that. <laughs> <laughs>
and look at the stuff they wrote I'm sure down. Plato's mom was like, "Come yeah. on, <laughs> <laughs> do something useful." <laughs> and like, "Come on, that's not putting bread and butter on the table, is it? All of these thoughts, all of this <laughs> nature of existence stuff. Come out of your bloody cave and eat something." It's it. It's always the strange sort of feeling of a fight to do the thing that feels natural, unless the thing that you do that's natural is already something that is given validation by society. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe it isn't like we have great, you have pop stars, you have singers and you're like, it's totally fine. I think most people look at them and go, well, they're singers, that's what they do. That's, they're an artist, that's great. But then you have your friend who sings really well and you're just like, come on, get a real job. That's never gonna go anywhere. <laughs> like delegitimizing the thing that for the few you say is okay. And that's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I mean, like this this show um, is very much about like I like to say reconnect with purpose, like, reconnect with your purpose, which is very much I suppose um, getting away from the whole mentality of just doing stuff because other people think you should do it it's like aligning yourself with your own personal values the things that you know your own desires and understanding yourself and why you kind of take that way so i'm gonna ask you another big question <laughs> yeah what, well like what, what is your purpose Ooh, i'll, I'll let you start oh good <laughs> <laughs> i think the more that we put to, together our sense of what our what Voices in the Dark is about, the more that I feel, well, this is also what I'm about. And we have the way we like to sign off the show, our sort of, I think our, like our guiding principle is be silly, be kind, be weird. That's, I feel like that's me. <laughs> Another thing that comes up is play and remember that it's all a game that you're playing. And in the game, be silly and be kind and be weird. Um, and some, and that immediately I go, but is that enough? Yeah, it is. It is enough. Combined with, I guess, my desire to make good art, make cool shit and share it with people. And it's only, so say, in, in, under the influence of a, a psychedelic, those things that can come up, I'm like, that is completely and purely the thing that I am and want to be and will be. That's my song and I I'm going to sing it. And then you leave that state and come back into a world that, where they immediately go, well, how are you going to make money out of that? <laughs> and, you know, in the this, this psychedelic state, you're like, money is pointless. What are we doing? You know, what is, what, this is ridiculous. And then suddenly you come back and you, we, we know why money is important. We know why like, the world actually works like this and so on. And it all becomes so much more complicated than it is, which is why, you can ask the question, how do we reconnect with our purpose? Well, I think the problem is often that you reconnect with your purpose. There it is. Make, make cool shit. Share it with people. And then you go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm with my purpose. Now, how do I do it? And I think the complicated thing is not necessarily the purpose. It's the how that comes afterwards. There's another Neil Gaiman thing he said in the commencement speech that, uh, that Tim Ferriss talks about a lot, and we, I've watched a few times recently, is um, it helps if you don't know what's impossible. And I think that I spent so much of my life around people and institutions that tell me that things are impossible. Hmm. And he says, if you don't know it's impossible, then it's easier to do. 
And I think there's a lot of truth, a lot there's of wisdom. An example in that. that I love, which was a, there was a particular weightlifting record, Olympic weightlifting record, that no one thought it could be possible to go past. And then there was like a genetic freak that did it, like a massive dude. Mm. But the moment he did it, then that record started getting broken. It was like, I don't know, a thousand pounds or something. Some, something like it was a really round number. Mm. The moment one person did it, other people knew that it could be done. And it started getting broken repeatedly. People broke yeah. that barrier. Mm. It's that it's, if you don't know you're allowed to go outside, your, so I have my own room, but we all have little rooms that we can't go outside because <laughs> we don't know it's possible. Yeah. The moment you yeah. see someone walk out, you're like, am I allowed? Okay. <laughs> Was there a door there? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. But for me, I guess increasing the complexity of the music of the universe is the best way I can say it. I'm going to make notes. I need to rephrase my... <laughs> <laughs> I want to advance humanity. I want to raise the bar. I want to inspire and lead. I, I like being a leader. I like being at the front. And I want to do stuff that, you know, makes a clear turning point in the history books. I want to change us biologically to the point that um, we don't have to die of old age if we don't want to. What is that going to do to society? Maybe there's be massive problems, but you know what? <laughs> Let's figure it out. Uh, rather than, oh yeah, no, we're, we're meant to die. Like, well, what if we weren't? What if that was no longer a thing? What happens afterwards? Would society become better? Would it become worse? Let's try it out. I want to get humanity outside of the solar system. Let's explore space. Let's, let's make Star Trek real. You know, like what is outside there? Let's, let's go and find out. Let's go discover it. I want to terraform planets just so that we can discover what it's like like can we like, we could potentially see evolution happen over a period of two million years just see the planet with basic life and study it for that long what an what an exciting endeavor to not just theorize about it but see it mm -hmm. like those are the kinds of things that my mind thinks about and that i want to do and that's why i see my purpose as trying to make that happen really giving it a go to pushing the envelope outside and raising the bar of what's impossible. I want, I want kids a thousand years from now to think like, sorry, what? They thought that they couldn't do that? Mm -hmm. Why? On the micro scale, I think one of the most rewarding feelings that I've ever had is helping, like when I've, I've taught students and help them say what they were trying to say but didn't know how to say and give them and I feel like it's the same thing. It's like, okay, I think this is possible. Let's see if we can't make it possible for you to do the thing that you're capable of doing and want to do. Which sounds like I should then be a teacher, but I think the format of the education system makes that a very unpleasant um, and unfulfilled. Like it, it betrays you're not the very really soul allowed to it. do that properly yeah, within the teaching system. Yeah, you're not allowed to teach in the teaching system. You just have to go jump through this hoop and this hoop. So maybe something like what we're creating is, you know, it is make the shit, show it to people, and then you don't know what they'll do with it. But you're trying to say, well, these are the this is the, the, the fruits of the experiences that we've had. Here are some ideas, and the more that you share these things, other people's minds spark and they set about doing their things. And maybe they feed back into yours. Maybe they go off their way. But 
it's a creative thing rather than just this stasis of acceptance. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> so uh, you, you said earlier that you tend not to like to do things for more than a couple of years. So where do you see Voices in the Dark in like five years? I fear for our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> where would you like it to be? I'd like it to be uh, multiple shows, I mean, like a, a, a production powerhouse that creates film, television, lots of podcasts, documentaries, sort of like a combination of HBO and Vice and, you know, oh, like okay. just putting out really good quality content. And a publishing house. <laughs> Creating art that speaks, that says a message, that helps people find what they're looking for. Or ask them questions. Yeah. That's the idea. That's the, that's, I agree. It's okay. good. We have cool. alignment here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hey. exactly, yeah. I want what are you talking about? We're selling. Both. <laughs> <laughs> I want to sell, sell, sell. We're selling life insurance. <laughs> I, uh, I want those things to exist so that we are providing a place in which other people can express and create their art too, that we can be part of like this, a creative collective that isn't about just sharing your underwear and generally being annoying to each other before you all go off and go back to your regular Netflix watching every evening lives, but <laughs> got such a complex. <laughs> Um, but instead, as Dre's saying, these multiple outlets where something like the idea of what Vice was meant to be at the beginning before it just became very boring and predictable, I suppose. Some elements of that, at least. Mm. But to, to have like this, the, the creative space for other people to be creative in, where we can make our own art, but know that we're also um, passing that on directly to people so they can be doing theirs. It'd be like, if it was in, in publishing, it'd be like, okay, you're already a successful author with all of this. So sometimes they do this, but more than like giving a jacket quote to somebody and saying this person's good. Well, what if you help get them signed up? What if you start, I think it works better in music. You start your own label and you sign the people that you hear are good and you invest in them even though they might not um, turn a profit because your integrity and focus is on this music, this art is great. Mm. and I want to get it out there and I have the ability in a mentor figure to do that, to help with that. Mm -hmm. my, my new personal tagline comes to mind. So people ask me what I do and it, it's hard to describe because it's not any one specific thing. I've changed it so many. Within even London Real, I've done the PR, the guest booking, uh, I've built their website. I've, like, it, it changed so many times because it's just whatever needed to be done. Mm -hmm. I would, would I, if I knew how to do it, I would do it. If I didn't know how to do it, I'd learn it and then do it. <laughs> So my, my tagline for that, when I try to describe to people, what do you do, is I help cool people do cool shit. <laughs> and I think that's really the essence of what we both want to do. I think we're really erudite, you know. It's always about <laughs> shit and... <laughs> <laughs> we do fucking shit. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> okay, I've got one last big question for you. Uh, if you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Anything come to mind for you? I mean, I think there's the, we should have like worthy answers, but 
I well, I suppose maybe this maybe this does make sense as an answer. I would want to do the thing I'm doing, which is develop change myself. Why? Because the world only exists for me as I perceive it, and if I can change my perception of it, I can. That that is, I think, the closest I can come to changing anything. And that doesn't mean I sit at home and go, "Oh, everything's fine now," but the way as as the the buddhists would say and others like would take the approach that you have to be all right in yourself and becoming from a positive place in order to affect anything and if you go and i found this when i've had the moments where i've been meditating frequently i am at this peaceful place with myself then i can kind of change the world around me because other people are stressing out, but simply the energy, the place that I'm in, the fact that they look to me to see if I'm annoyed too, and I'm like, no, it's fine, let me help, let me do this. You become mm -hmm. a demonstration to people of how they could be. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've, we've all, I think, experienced this where there's just one person in the room who seems to change the whole dynamic in a positive way. It can happen in a negative way too, but in that positive way, where they give you an example of something else. I would, th there's a selfish motivation, I would like to not, I'd like to not feel so bad and feel so negative and feel so anxious and still, you know, feel like on a day-to-day -day basis, I might feel like it would be better if I killed myself. I'd like to not feel that way, amazingly. But I see that as a, yeah, yeah. Um, because then the things that I can do and contribute in a realistic way to the world, I think will be, that will all be improved if I can keep developing, working, and giving and sharing that to other people, which I think is a more, I guess, a realistic, if I want to play this question as a what can I actually do, rather than I'd like to eliminate world hunger and so <laughs> forth, then, yeah, I guess something like that. Mm. Just things that, my, so I'm torn because I keep, I keep thinking of things that would help the raise that bar, that raise the bar on humanity to, well, we figured this out, now we have to step it up. But I feel like solving it overnight with like the click of our fingers might have completely unintended consequences. So I'll give you an example. Let's say it's like a genie's wish, like tomorrow everyone will wake up and their core emotional need will no longer be there, it will be addressed. So if you needed to feel loved, you feel loved. If you needed to feel significant, you feel significant. Then I thought, wouldn't society just collapse? <laughs> People would just be like, I'm, I, don't, well, I, I don't need to go out to work tomorrow. I don't need to go and like, yeah, I'm good. I've achieved my purpose in life. <laughs> like, it might have completely unintended consequences. So I don't know. I'm not sure. But potentially, either universal basic income, if that became a thing worldwide, or free unlimited energy in the form of nuclear fusion. Either of those two things would be, uh, w it solves so many problems for humans that now, like, well, well, what do we do with our lives? If everybody get, if everybody has universal basic income, if everybody can pay for their food and shelter and to exist mm -hmm. without having to do a no purpose clerical admin job that society does not need. So they can sit back and think, Maybe I'll compose a symphony. Mm -hmm. What would happen? What would, like, would, what art could be created? What inventions could be had if that happened? And same things with free energy, because 
it would, we could deliver something like that. It would be there would be enough power to 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 have enough food and like warmth and everything that we need. And then it's it's that Star Trek point. It's that achieving you know one on the Kardashev scale of um, I don't know if you know that the Kardashev scale is the scale of um, sort of societies. One is being able to utilize the energy of your planet, two of your solar system, or so on. It's sort of how advanced. Is that good. within Star Trek? Or? No, it's like a, a science fiction term. But it's sort of it's that singularity point of well, we've we've now moved to let's like level one complete. <laughs> <laughs> so what does level two look like? That to me is exciting. Yeah. But I feel like maybe we should have to work for that. Maybe it shouldn't be like a thing that I solve overnight. I don't know. Wow. We're down with universal basic income. It comes up in, in the show quite often, the sense that so many, so many of us operate, and I feel myself uh, operating from this, the, the mindset of scarcity and fear, that, oh, but I still need to have a job that I don't actually want to do because guess what, I need to pay my bills and I need to feed myself and I need, and if you weren't conditioned into that thinking of, but I, I need these things, there's no way out and I also need to sleep so I can't just do everything for my, my dream at mm -hmm. night, then people, I think, would do many more things. Someone that maybe realizes their job is going to die out, like a coal miner, would be able to like, take a break, go back to school, learn a new trade. Yeah. Like, it, it's not like, ah, shit, I need to lobby the coal industry to lobby the government to maintain coal even though it's not needed. Like, that kind of disappears. Because that fear of, I need, the world to stay it as it is is gone because you can kind of just take back and kind of think, well, what would I like? What would I like to do? What, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. But I mean, well, presumably the biggest counter argument to that is the fact that we just encourage people to do nothing. But is that a problem? Do we need everybody to do everything? We don't only automation, computers, and machines mean that you could have like eighty percent of the population doing nothing. Because technically, if you look at what people do at work, most of them are doing nothing <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's just they're pretending not to. Yeah. They're yeah. Facebooking their, their way through what should be a two or three hour day <laughs> for eight hours. And like, why do we make them pretend? Why isn't it okay that they're home teaching their children about the great literature and playing with them? Like, if they need to do something, then the need will arise and someone will do it. Like, there's no, I mean, would you go to a caveman who's just playing in the sun and throwing rocks in a pond and going, what is your purpose? What are you doing right <laughs> like, now? What, what like, are you contributing? You're not, you're not you know? contributing to society. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, he doesn't need to. And we had to for a while to be able to live in large numbers together because otherwise things would break down. But we're about to come out of the end of that tunnel where we will, 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 there will be a point where we will not necessarily need to. And so we should start preparing for that because it's going to happen whether we want it or not. And something terrible has happened that we think of that, that you need to justify your existence. No, you don't. You exist because you exist. You exist because your mom and dad fucked. That's, <laughs> that's it, guys. Thank you. Yeah, well done. Thank you, guys. <laughs> that's why. And yet we're so, what you asked the question, I felt the question in myself as you were asking it, like, but won't people do, do nothing? I love that you said, well, why should they even need to? Because we've just encoded it as that's bad because laziness is bad because, like, well, no, isn't, don't, why do you think we look at children and see how carefree and excited they are and we, we look at them and go, wow, that seems wonderful. 
how wonderful it is to be a child. But he's not filling in a spreadsheet. Yeah, so <laughs> now we need, he shouldn't exist. we need to trash that. <laughs> and the second part of, I think, mm -hmm. the answer is that, okay, some people maybe will do nothing in terms mm -hmm. of the way that we think of what something is right now. But others, I think maybe most, my mind, people do do things. People like doing things. Some people will just go and enjoy gardening. Or maybe they'll make the local area more pretty for other people. Some people are just great at being like social organizers and will do little clubs, get people together. Some people like doing sports. They'll go maybe and do sporty things. Maybe they're just purely a good shoulder to cry on for their family. Yeah, and that's that could enough. be their purpose. That's more than enough. But they can't do that if they if you forcing them to work 12 hours a day for something that doesn't need to be done. But people do need to do that because they need money to be able to survive in the real world. Yes. So once yeah. that's removed, what happens <laughs> then? Mm -hmm. That's 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 why I, I like it as an idea. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there'll be complications that I haven't thought of. Well, and it doesn't give you enough to have more than the, the basic basic. So you would still then go, okay, well, I need to do something. I feel most people, I think, would go, I need so I, have, I can buy the things that I want in addition to the basics, so what will it be? But I don't have to take just anything. Maybe I'll try this, maybe I've always fancied doing this, and then you go and give that a go. What would that thing be, you know? I think that's very exciting, and then it's very depressing to walk out the door and go, that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> they can, it's beginning to be tried. I think in Finland, Finland is it? Yeah. They're just putting it into action. Well, let's see what happens. And ignore the fuckheads who say, oh, in Scandinavian countries, everything. I don't think Finland even counts as Scandinavia, but does it? I, don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, it does, I think. I'm sure they're, they're not one of the ones that I'm sure Russia thinks, Russia thinks Russia. otherwise. <laughs> no. Um, Sweden, Norway, Finland. I guess I think of it as the, they could, we often think of it as linguistically similar, and that's not true of Finnish. I think that's why I'm getting confused. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's see what happens there and not just say, oh, it's a smaller country and they're more culturally um, uh, singular compared to others and blah, blah, blah. Let's see what happens and keep our minds open. If we don't, when 90% when, when of jobs are done by computers and, and machines, there'll be a revolution. Because if you haven't taken care of the the 99% the, the <laughs> when you're not feeding them they will rebel they will tear down your door when, when they're just unhappy because they don't have too much money and their job sucks you might be able to keep them down and make anonymous not grow too large but when they're <laughs> dying because they've not enough food you're gonna get a French Revolution all over again so let's figure it out before it gets there See, I, 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 it feels like we're a long way away from that though well, we, we might be a little well, I don't know that's what everyone thinks before it happens, so uh, it's always a surprise when it actually happens. Do you think we'll happens. witness that within our lifetimes? I think so. I've, I've seen some, like, a lot of workers will disappear, like, their jobs are going to disappear in the next 20, 30 years. Like, machines will do them. Other jobs will be done by software. I've already seen like a really, really, like, so someone that got shafted by a lawyer in America created a website where you can input some really basic information and it spits out legal documents for you so that you don't need a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> like, so what's that going to mean is that you still have lawyers, but for really top end stuff. But all those middle lawyers, the ones that didn't do too well in school, the average lawyer job will disappear because you won't need it. A computer will do it. 
you know, uh, governments will get more efficient and simple about tax. So it's done automatically for you by software. Like it's all these things will remove all sorts of will remove accountants. It'll it, it'll remove the middle class jobs as well as the poor jobs. Yeah. And then there's what's left. What do people do? Like we can't. I can't guess. We can't all be YouTubers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe who knows? <laughs> but that's going to happen within our lifetime and that's going to be really weird and confusing oh unless there's a complete societal collapse so the reason why it might not happen is if world war three happens and resets us back or if we get hit by an asteroid and we are overdue just so everyone knows so if that's the case then maybe it's further away because there could be such disastrous consequences worldwide that um we can't get there and so it's delayed by a century or two whilst we rebuild back to that level yeah, or we just like cancel the internet. <laughs> the internet is cancelled. <laughs> no. Well, maybe Trump is going to cancel culture. I don't know what's going <laughs> to. Just an announcement. <laughs> Over. Good morning, America. <laughs> culture is cancelled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Guys, it's been such a pleasure having you here. I've, Thank you, uh, it's been amazing. It's, I've loved talking yeah, to you. Thank really, you really interesting. Um, you've both got incredible minds, you know, <laughs> just uh, really, really fascinating stuff. And uh, I can't wait to see where you go with Voice in the Dark. It, it looks looks set for stardom. Wow, it's going to be fun. That's, a good t that's, good. that's lovely to hear, right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. I, d I do believe it. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming and I wish you all the best. Thanks, and to you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>